Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I've got a wonderful show for you. I'm so glad that it's Tuesday. I'm going to uh, bring on my friend Rob Bluey here in just a minute. Then I'm going to have an interesting conversation with uh, John Dixon. He wrote a book called Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. He's coming to us all the way from Australia. And then hour two, Dr. Mark Muska is going to be in the studio to take your questions. That's Ask the Professor. So get your questions ready for hour two. But to get things started, Rob Louie is the executive editor at The Daily Signal. Always glad to have him on the show. Rob, welcome. It's great to be back, Bill. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, Rosie was just saying, oh, I'm so excited to have Rob back. I haven't heard him in a while. So there you go. <laughs> That's right. We missed last week, but I, yes, we did. I, I hope everything everything went well. And uh, it sure is a busy week in Washington, D.C. There is no shortage of news oh, to my. discuss. That's yeah, for sure. No kidding. And when I heard about this $3.5 trillion spending bill. I think the thing that caught me off guard was the announcement that it would cost nothing. It would be easily paid for. And I thought, how is that? How do you work out that math? Well, and, and the interesting thing is, Bill, even though they repeatedly say this and it's been debunked time and time again, uh, you heard the vice president, uh, excuse me, President Biden say it again today. And he says it right at the same time. He's also saying that it's going to be paid for by corporations and the wealthy. So I don't know if it doesn't cost anything, why are other people paying for it? So it, the, the math just doesn't quite seem to add up. But of course it has a cost, and the cost is well over $3.5 trillion. And, uh, and there are other costs associated with it as well, and those are the costs to our freedom, because essentially what they're proposing is a radical transformation of how our country would work. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially cradle-to-grave social services, and it's um, it's concerning. It's concerning for those who, who value the freedom. It's those who, who are concerned about the national debt. Um, and the fact that we're having now this other debate about the debt limit and the fact that Democrats who control a majority in the House, the Senate, and also have the White House, and they're blaming Republicans for not passing the debt limit. I mean, I, I just don't understand uh, how this is how the American people are are trying to rationalize all this, and hopefully they recognize that they can they can call them out on it and um, and and it's not necessarily the way that they're trying to spin it because that is just not the truth. Yeah, and when social programs begin, it's really hard to have them stop ever. Well, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, you can look at any social program throughout our history, and mm -hmm. you can see uh, not only is it difficult. Uh, to stop them, Bill, it's difficult to reform them. Yeah, good And point. look at something as old as Social Security. We've been talking about reform for decades. And eventually, Social Security will go bankrupt. And it'll probably be at that last moment when people are trying to scramble and figure things out rather than planning years ahead when we should. So there are any number of entitlement programs that, um, that I think probably, you know, provide the, the support and services that people need, but could operate better. But getting something across the finish line and trying to make those changes is always so difficult, uh, which is why I think that you've seen certain things like this, um, this COVID, uh, the, the COVID package, which has uh, done things like uh, give temporary assistance to renters. 
um, you know, now they're trying to say, well, that has to continue yet again, even though we're really out of the, the, the period when that should have been extended. So, Bill, um, it's it's Washington at its finest for sure. Yeah. So, Rob, obviously, as Christians, we want to be sensitive to the needs of people who are in trouble and we want to be uh, a resource to help them through seasons of life, which are difficult. Uh and then you look at some of the programs like Social Security, very popular program, Medicaid, very popular program. How do you draw the line between uh, the programs that make it and the ones that we want and then ones that we think is going to be too much? Well, you're absolutely right on that. And I think this is probably ultimately depends on your political philosophy, because there are some individuals who would, um, you know, have if you're a libertarian and you want the, the least amount of government possible, you probably want, uh, you know, to make some pretty substantial changes to how something like Social Security would operate to give you more personal freedom. But if you're somebody who thinks that their government should provide a social safety net and you think it is constitutional, then um, then, yeah, I think that you probably are going to have more more willingness to uh, go along with some of the programs that exist. But Bill, I, I think where I personally draw the line is when it infringes upon our freedoms or it takes away some of the things that we should be doing as a, as a, as a family or as a community. I mean, this is one of the things that you and I have talked about for years now is mm -hmm. the diminishing role of civic organizations, including churches in yes. our culture. Whereas at one point they were providing a lot of the services that, that families would depend upon. And now it's the government that stepped in to really play a role. And I don't think that's good long-term for our country. Mm -hmm. Rob, talk about the, the two competing bills that are uh, being discussed right now in, in Congress. Sure. Well, the two that you're referring to, uh, one has to do with infrastructure. Um, and it's it's not necessarily infrastructure as we would traditionally think about it as roads and bridges. There is some of that money appropriated in the bill, but um, it has a lot of other things that are associated with climate change and and uh, and, and renewable energy and, and all of those things that uh, those in the Democratic Party uh, you know prefer to support. The, uh, th that is about $1.2 trillion. Now, this bill already passed the U.S. Senate, and it made its way over to the House. The House uh, has decided there's a debate, which I'll get into in just a moment, between the, uh, the, the far left of the Democratic Party and, and, and just your, I guess, standard bear Democrats mm -hmm. over, um, over what order to, to pass this bill. There is a second bill, a much larger bill, which has a price tag of at least $3.5 although some have estimated that it's at least $5.5 And that's what's called the Reconciliation Bill, or what, what President Biden calls the Build Back Better Agenda. Mm -hmm. And that includes all sorts of these prog social programs, which we were just talking about. Uh, the biggest tax hike in American history. It's uh, one of the biggest spending programs in American history. And, uh, and again, you have this debate taking place among the Democrats because there are some who say we need to pass the bigger bill first in order to guarantee that some of the more moderate members of the party come along and support it and get it across the finish line before the more progressive or, or far left leaning members of the party uh, pass the smaller bill. And so that's what the debate is. They were supposed mm -hmm. to have a vote last week. They couldn't get it done. Uh, now Biden has kind of extended the timeline to say, well, it could happen any time in the next seven months. I, I think the longer something like this drags out, as we've seen in Washington, the less likely it is to happen. Deadlines typically force, uh, for, force uh, people to come together and compromise. But I don't know, uh, Bill, it's hard for me to see how this one ultimately is, uh, is resolved. I think that one of the bills that we do know needs to pass is what I mentioned earlier, and that's the debt limit bill, because the Treasury Department has said within the next two weeks, you better get it done. 
And uh, it's really incumbent now upon the Democrats to, to figure out how to do that. Uh, and they have the votes. They can do that with 51 votes. And so it's, um, it's something they can do. Whether or not they want to take that vote is another question. Yeah, Rob, do you have any idea what our, our monthly debt service is on our debt? Is it in the $40, $40 billion range every month? I believe you are correct, Bill. Um, we we are paying uh, we are paying a, a a higher percentage year after year just on the interest on the debt, and there will be a point in time where that just becomes uh, you know it just eats up so much of the federal budget that it's unsustainable. I yeah. mean, and and this is a bipartisan problem. Uh, I I know your listeners might be thinking, well, geez, Rob's going on awful lot about the Democrats <laughs> today. I am the first to point the blame at Republicans who ran up the debt during President George W. Bush's presidency and during Donald Trump's presidency. Uh, but I mean, it, it's happened re- repeatedly. In fact, the only time when it seemed Congress and the president were able to get things somewhat under control and balance the budget was when Bill Clinton was in the White House and Republicans were running uh, the Congress mm-hmm. in, the, in the 1990s. But it's been a long time since then. And, uh, and I'm not sure we're going to see those days again. But uh, but Bill, we've got to start making some tough choices here. This is uh, th- this is not a path that I think we want to continue to go down, and it's not the future that I want to leave for for my kids. Yeah, when I think of uh, what we pay teachers and some of the salaries of people who work so hard, making our world so much better, you think of uh, forty billion dollars a year uh, a month that the government spends just servicing the debt that we're carrying. It's pretty well, it's uh, been, remarkable. Yeah. It, it is, uh, particularly because we were just talking about some of the other programs that, that are, are badly in need of reform, whether it be Social Security or, or Medicare. I mean, yeah. those programs to be sustainable for future generations, um, you know, obviously could benefit from from money that's not going to pay down the debt. So I uh, I, I just don't know. Ultimately, um, I think some, some people have come up with some solutions, mint a trillion dollar coin, they say. And I just don't know how that solves the problem long term. But uh, but there's some crazy ideas out there, Bill, that's for sure. Yeah, Rob, what does mint a trillion dollar coin mean? I don't even know what that means. Well, there is apparently a provision that allows the Treasury Secretary to deposit a trillion dollar coin into the Federal Reserve Bank, which would essentially allow us to, to buy some more time and money, uh, quite literally. And so there um, so it would. It's not. I don't want your listeners to think that there's actually a design for a trillion dollar coin. I, I, it, we're still in like the very idea or concept right. phase. But but yes, the the U.S. Mint would would mint this coin and put a, a face value of one trillion dollars on it, and it would go sit in the Federal Reserve Bank, huh. and uh, and it would presumably, according to people who support this idea, take care of the debt problem. You would just keep minting, minting more of these. And maybe you mint seven of them and you've got $7 trillion that you can suddenly um, wipe wipe off the books. But but ultimately, I don't see how long-term that solves the problem that we're facing. Yeah, and then you accidentally one day put it in the Coke machine, you know? (laughs) Yes, right. (laughs) Then you got bigger problems. Yeah. Rob, let me take a short break. When I come back, i got lots of topics I want to cover with you. Rob Louie is my guest. He's the executive editor at The Daily Signal. If you head to dailysignal.com, you can learn uh, more about that wonderful uh, paper. We'll be right back.
All right, I'm back with Rob Bluey, executive editor at The Daily Signal. I don't know if I was just uh, looking for words, uh, but Daily Signal is a news organization. Uh, it's not a paper, but I, I think people got the point. Well, you know, when we started, Bill, it's interesting. We actually thought about having a print edition, but we said, you know, for for a news organization that starts in the digital era, it seems to, you know, a little bit old fashioned to yeah. go backwards. But yeah. uh, I, I, hey, I still I still subscribe to the newspaper every day, so I'm I'm uh, you know old fashioned myself in that regard. Yeah, and I say I will say I, I read the paper online. So that I'm, is true. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, and 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 increasingly, uh, you know, more and more people are are finally figuring out some success to do that. I mean, they're taking their old business model and figuring out how to update it for 2021. Yeah, Rob, let's talk a little bit about uh, what happened uh, today um, with uh, Facebook and how social media kind of went down yesterday, and and what kind of havoc that wreaked. Well, two, two, yes, two, two big stories there. So um, in, in recent weeks, the Wall Street Journal has published um, a number of documents coming from Facebook from a whistleblower. That whistleblower testified before the U.S. Senate today and brought uh, more, of those, uh, more of that information to light. Um, separately, uh, you're right, uh, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp all, all went down yesterday and a lot of people speculating about what happened and the technical issues behind that. Uh, it did send both of these uh, events happening simultaneously. Did send Facebook's stock price uh, to w- one of its lowest points. I think down fifteen percent from its previous high in September. Wow. So, um, so yeah, they're they're feeling it, <laughs> not only on Wall Street but uh, but also um, ac- across uh, across America. I-, I think that some of the big takeaways from the whistleblower are are number one um, how uh, how people's um, uh, perceptions of of each other uh, of politics is shaped by the social media posts that they view on a platform like Facebook. I think one of the things that's really disturbing, as as the father of a daughter, um, how Instagram can influence how young women uh, think of themselves and view themselves. So you know there is um, you know a number of concerning things to come out of these documents that Facebook and previously had an and and probably wisely so didn't want to publicly disclose, but I think it's to the benefit of all Americans, particularly users of these platforms, to have this information. And that that doesn't even really scratch the surface of some of the other issues that that exist at a place like Facebook, which is the censorship, which, um, you know, appears to be getting worse by the day. Uh, we we continue to, you know, confront issues ourselves. And I know many other people, um, regard, you know, depending on your political views, you might experience it a little bit more than others. But Facebook's got a lot of questions to answer, and they, um, they're on the defensive. There's no doubt about that. When I was listening to some of the testimony by the whistleblower today, it seemed that there was a fair amount of bipartisan uh, agreement, which was uh, so unlike politics right now. You're right. There is bipartisan agreement on this. Now, I'm not sure if there's bipartisan agreement on the solution. There's definitely uh, bipartisan agreement on the problem. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, but I don't know ultimately uh, where... Uh, Republicans and Democrats come together on this. Um, there have been several solutions proposed, uh, some of which I think are are are, are better in, than others. Um, again, going back to where we started the conversation earlier, I think we need to have a solution where 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 government doesn't exert control over over the platforms in a way that stifles more speech. Um, I think I think as as somebody who uh, has a background in journalism and and cherishes the First Amendment, I, I want to uh, have have 
give people the ability to, to, to have those conversations on these platforms. And so some things like antitrust laws, you know, I think I worry about because I, I, I don't necessarily know that those are the best path uh, to go down. But there could be reforms to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, that's a law that was was passed long before Facebook ever existed. So it seems like it's in, in, in dire need of being updated uh, to, to be uh, relevant to the times. And so um, we'll see where, where it ultimately goes. goes. The one thing that, uh, that people have observed is that Facebook seems a lot less um, apologetic today than they once did. And uh, so they themselves appear to be changing tactics, perhaps in part because the competition has become more fierce as well. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking, I, th- I think Facebook has 2.6 billion subscribers. I, I think, well, I can't believe that there's not more competition. Well, <laughs> that remember, um, you know, it's, it, is, uh, it, it, it is the big dominant player in the marketplace. Yeah. Um, and not that I'm a TikTok fan. I'm not a TikTok fan at all. Uh, given its its connections to China and some of the things that that go on with TikTok, um, and we can get into a whole separate conversation about um, how TikTok users have just tormented teachers and school administrators so far this school year, but uh, TikTok just surpassed a billion users itself. So I mean, there are wow. other platforms that are gaining in popularity, and I think that um, just as we saw MySpace uh, being the the, you know, the king of social media uh, over a decade ago. Uh, you know, these things might not last forever. It, it might, what might seem inevitable today, um, you know, could could quickly change in the future. I mean, is there competition to Amazon? And if there isn't, we should start robbing Billazon. That would be yes. <laughs> go, go into competition. I mean, people are used to and ready and willing to shop online. Why is why is there no not more not not more competition? Well, I, I think you know once you establish uh, your, your your dominance in the marketplace, yeah, it is difficult for other other competitors to come along, and that's one of the arguments that you hear uh, from some of the populists on both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and and I think that that's, that's where when you get to some of the solutions, it begins to worry me a little bit because they you know when you talk about breaking up companies, it's like well, what size do you you know sometimes it seems artificial where where they. Um, they want to draw the line. And so, Bill, I think that we, you know, we have to be t- careful decisions about what we do in the future. That's, um, that's going to be, we don't want to stifle innovation. Well, at the same time, we want to make sure that there is that healthy competition that exists out there. And a lot of people have pointed to the Amazon model, not just because of the, the challenge of online shopping, but of the impact on brick and mortar stores right. and, and local communities. Right. Rob, talk about uh, the demonstrations that went on in Texas uh, last Saturday, um, demonstrating the, the near total abortion ban and and that law yes well so we have uh there were so demonstrations not only in if we're referring to the women's march the, so I they am. were yes. you know all over the place but yes texas was a primary focus this year based on what happened with the texas heartbeat law and the texas heartbeat law is uh, is quite innovative in its um in its approach and the Supreme Court has uh, has so far kept it in place, in part because of the way the law was written. It does not uh, hold government, uh, it, the government officials cannot bring charges against abortion providers, but individual citizens can. And so it's a slightly different and novel uh, approach uh, to the issue. Um, it's one of the issues that... Um, that I expect will continue to be debated uh, fiercely as we have this case before the Supreme Court, which is a different issue. Uh, That looks at Mississippi's law. It's the Dobbs case. And the Dobbs case um, will be argued before the court on December 1st. So uh, abortion is going to be a big issue, I suspect, in the 2022 midterm elections. 
And, uh, and Bill, you know, it's, it's about time, I think, that we have some clarity on this issue. There are many states that want to put in place their own laws that their elected representatives um, have, have passed, and they don't want judges dictating to them what they can and can't do. And so this is going to be an issue that I suspect will, will continue to be um, from the time the, the, the judge, justices hear the Supreme Court arguments on December 1st all the way through next June. Uh, it's going to be something on the minds of a lot of Americans. And you're going to see a lot more protests both on the pro-life side and the, uh, the other side. Rob, has the CDC started using the expression pregnant people? <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, pregnant people, um, birthing persons, you name it. It's uh, it's incredible what uh, what what mothers are being called uh, these days, and uh, even written into some legislation. I mean, it's 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 just remarkable that um, uh, how the language is is changing, and I think it's important that we push back on this and call them out. For oh, it. amen. Uh, we don't we don't want a situation where uh, you know we're, we're confusing um, these these words that we've used for for millennia yeah. <laughs> centuries and uh bill i i just don't understand it i don't understand why I, and i think the american people have had enough of it frankly it, it's kind of like when joe biden was talking about latinx and you heard a lot of people in that community speak out and say that they reject that term and they don't understand why the president was using it um it's this it's this use of of language in a way that you know is just um so antithetical to everything that we cherish and believe. Yeah. I mean, when do we write laws based on how people feel? <laughs> yeah, well, in- increasingly, I don't know. Maybe it's a generational thing, but uh but yes, this is uh this is a point that I, I think is is worth noting and 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 definitely something that we should be concerned about. I I think it ultimately goes back to education. I mean, it's it's how we're raising raising kids today. It's how, it's how kids are coming up through college and and not necessarily hearing different points of view or perspectives. And um, you know, that's something to be we should all be worried about. It's why I, I'm a big advocate for parents taking a very active role in their kids' education. Yeah, I think women would want to stand up and shout, "No, I'm a woman. Only women give birth." Well, you would think so, and that's the, that's one of the interesting dynamics here because you have at the, at the same time that you have uh, people asserting the important role that women play in in, in our society and our culture, uh, then you have you know things like this happen, and and we have the whole debate about you know should who should be allowed in locker rooms and and right. should biological men be allowed to use women's locker rooms? I I I just don't know, Bill. I, I I'm concerned about this and. Um, and, and then the thing that also troubles me, as we've told some of these stories on the Daily Signal, the individuals like the teachers who use the wrong pronoun and then face severe consequences, including firing, because of it. That's crazy. Rob, thanks so much for uh, being on the show today. I always look forward to our visits. Thank you. Uh, have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Bill. It's good you to bet. be with you. Thank you so much. Rob Blue, he's been my guest. He is the executive editor at the Daily Signal. I always head to the Daily Signal to check things out. Take a little break. When we come back, John Dixon... It's going to be coming to us all the way from Australia. He's written an interesting book called Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. That's all coming up next. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno, Primetime Drive. 
It is the afternoon show, but it is uh, the breakfast show in Australia where my guest lives and he's coming to us today. Rosie, when you came to work for the show, uh, you have an eye for talent. And one of the very first guests you wanted on was Dr. John Dixon. It's true. It's true. I know. I, I know. I'm a history geek. I saw his videos. I was going through the library at uh, at the radio station here, and he has so many books. So we're talking about his newest book, uh, uh, Bullies and Saints. But he has so many. Yeah, I hope written. this is just the beginning of our time with John because, again, I'm a history geek. and He loves history, too. Oh, he loves history. He's written over 20 books. He's not only an author and speaker, but a historian and also a media presenter. Uh, two of his books have become television documentaries. He also co-hosted the documentary for The Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. Sounds very interesting. Mm-hmm. And he teaches a course on the historical Jesus at the University of Sydney in Australia and researches the origins of Christianity in the Roman Empire. I know. This is way more interesting than... Anything I normally do. <laughs> well, and are you hearing that there might be an Old Testament series show that he might have a favorite yeah, we, Old Testament character? We definitely have to talk to him about that. I know. Yeah. But Dr. John Dixon is our guest all the way from his home in, in Sydney, Australia. John, welcome. Good morning. Welcome. I mean, thank you so much. You Americans are so sweet. That oh. introduction is too kind. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, your book, Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History. This this is going to be a, a book that anyone who's interested in history and, and might be even skeptical of the Christian faith, but has an open mind to f- learning the truth, this is a good book for them. Yes, uh, most of my books have been written for people who aren't sure what to make of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're Christian books for the person who isn't yet a Christian, is, is how I think of it. And a lot of people today fear that Christianity has really only damaged the world. You often hear people say, you know, religion poisons everything. Yeah. And they mean Christianity. They, they don't just mean the other religions. <laughs> and so... I think um, to approach this um, as a Christian, um, I have to be honest about the failings of the church, and that's what the bullies in the title means. And hopefully by being honest about the failings of church history, um, I have an opportunity then to talk about the beautiful tune of Jesus, as I put it, that is his gospel of the love of enemy, of, of God himself, giving himself for the enemy that we might be saved. And and that beautiful tune does also weave its way through every century of church history. And that's what this book does. It shows the bullies and the saints of every history of the last uh, 20 centuries and asks the reader to ponder the question, which is truer to the founder? When Christians are starting wars and torturing people, are they obeying their master or departing? It's obvious. When Christians are starting hospitals and offering education for all and um, you know caring for the poor, are they following the master or disobeying the master? And again, the answer to that is obvious. And hopefully by the end, the skeptic might think, hey, well, I should have another 
another listen to that beautiful tune of Jesus. Yeah, uh, John, I love in the book, you sort of come out swinging with some of the biggest assumptions and objections to Christianity through the centuries and how the churches were kind of bullies. They, they, would, they, they killed and, and conquered to spread the gospel, huh? Yeah, I mean, there were times when that <laughs> was when that was true. <laughs> hard to say that. It's hard to say that out loud. It is hard, but I mean, the thing is, the, in the first three centuries, you don't see any of that. Okay. In the first three centuries, uh, the Christian tools were prayer, persuasion, service, and suffering. Yeah. Um, and all of our evidence makes that clear. Yeah. Now, and by the end of the fourth century. It's a little bit different. They're rioting, they're ripping down pagan temples, and on a couple of occasions murdering people. Um, now, not not all Christians, but I'm just saying some Christians. And fortunately, there are always prophets, you know, um, people whom God sends to the church to say, hey, we've got a plank in our eye. We need to take it out. Yeah, in the book, you really talk about the Crusades kind of in a nutshell, which you do very uh, succinctly, which I I love. Would you be able to uh, just pick a crusade and give us a little taste? Yeah, well, I mean, the first crusade is, is the, I think, the most interesting one because, well, it's the first. Um, but all of the theology is developed there. Now, on the one hand, the first crusade was a response to the aggression of Islamic armies in the centuries before. Uh, Islamic armies had taken over the Middle East and they were pressuring Constantinople, which at that point was still Christian. And so the European Christians started this crusade. They wanted to go and, you know, protect their Christian Eastern friends, but also win back Jerusalem. So at one level, you could say, well, it was justified, right? To, to if, if any war is justified, it's justified to go and do that. However, when they conducted the war, they uh, marched down the Rhine and slaughtered Jewish communities as practice on their way wow. to the Middle East. Wow. And when they got to Jerusalem, yeah, when they got to Jerusalem uh, and they, they took the city, they broke all the rules of just war by killing women and children as well as combatants. And so at that point, whatever you might say about, oh, you know, the Crusades were a defensive maneuver, they ended up being a disgusting blasphemy. And the day after they took Jerusalem, as uh, this is July 15, 1099, the, the next day, July 16, they held a church service in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, right there in Jerusalem. I'm sure many of your listeners have, have been to that church. They held a church service there, praising Jesus for this crushing victory over the unbelievers. And the discord there mm. is is shocking. And I think everyone can tell that is not the beautiful tune that Jesus taught us to sing. That is that is way out of tune. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how these crusades had a reputation for this successful bullying. That's just crazy. Mm, well, they ended up being incredibly unsuccessful. <laughs> I mean, there are five crusades in the Middle East. And although that first crusade, they, they took yeah. Jerusalem... Uh, the next Crusades, they were complete failures. The Muslims repelled them. And, you know, it, it, for most of Muslim history, the Crusades were remembered, were remembered as proof that Muslims are better than Christians at fighting. <laughs> I mean, it's only in recent times that the word Crusade has come to sort of mean Christian bullying. So we have next Jesus the, talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. Loving your enemies, do good to those who hate you. This is turning everything inside out. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I designed the book so that we start at the midway point 
uh, between Jesus and today, as that's you know around one thousands. That's when the Crusades were. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I wind back to the original and and then ask the question: How could we possibly have got to that point when Jesus said, "Love your enemy, do good to those who hate you, um, pray for those who mistreat you." And the thing about that ethic is that it isn't an arbitrary moralism on the part of Jesus. It's the whole story of Jesus. I mean, his whole story was to come to uh, give himself for the enemies of God, to lay down his life for our forgiveness. And so it isn't just this arbitrary, hey, love your enemies. It's actually what Jesus Christ is like. And for the next three centuries, Christians really did pursue that ethic in quite dramatic ways. We have Roman evidence. We have obviously Christian evidence making clear that the Christians were uh, oppressed from time to time by the Romans. And the Christians somehow were so confident that Jesus was Lord that they felt, well, we can afford to be good losers. (laughs) We can afford to be crushed and yet smile sweetly and keep preaching the gospel at them. And that strategy of persuasion and service and suffering uh, and prayer actually led to the transformation of the Roman Empire. Um, it, it really wasn't Constantine in the fourth century that converted the Roman Empire. It was what the Christians had done in laying the groundwork through persuasion uh, that really brought the empire around. Mm-hmm. Dr. John Dixon is my guest. His book is called Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. In chapter five, John, you talk about uh, the person, persecution of the church from AD 64 to 312. And you entitled it Good Losers. <laughs> Please say more about that. Well, it's my overwhelming impression of those few centuries is that um, Christians were good losers. Um, and the Romans <laughs> spotted this. The Romans couldn't work out why you could kill a whole bunch of Christians and the Christians would still say, oh, but we're going to be praying for you. Don't you worry about that. Um, and it really confused everyone. But, but um, you know, skeptics used to say, oh, it's because the Christians were all weaklings and slaves that they didn't know better. Of course, they adopted that humble loser ethic. But actually, the primary sources make abundantly clear that it was because they thought they were winners that they could afford to be good losers in the sense that they knew that Christ had died and he had been raised and sits at God's right hand. And that absolute confidence gave them the ability to lose some of the battles because they knew that they had won the war and would. And so it's actually out of this conviction that Christ reigns that they could walk into the arena and face suffering and um, you know, often death. But, but even if it wasn't death, they were um, uh, exiled, their churches were burnt down, their scriptures were collected and, and um, destroyed, but they would continue to pray for their enemies They would continue to preach the gospel, and um, it's remarkable. They they were good losers because they knew they'd already won. John, when you're doing uh, your research on the Crusades, what were some things that you came across that you were a little bit shocked by or or surprised by, or um, you could tell us that we may not know? Perhaps the most shocking um, theological thing about the Crusades um, isn't simply that 
um, Christians went to war. I mean, I am not an absolute pacifist. I, I you know, I think war can be um, the best of a bad option. The, but the theological thing that is most shocking is the promise from the higher-ups in the church that anyone who participates in the crusade and kills an, an infidel um, will have their sins forgiven. Wow. They literally taught, and we have the documents, they literally taught that killing in this war would atone for your sins. Now that, to my mind, and I'm sure to yours, Bill, is a departure from the original gospel of Christ that is hard for us to understand. Mm-hmm. In your book, um, you talk about some people that I've, frankly, don't know a lot about. Um, Julian the Apostate. Yeah. Uh, well, his name sort of gives it away, although he didn't go by the name Julian the Apostate. That, that's what the Christians called him afterwards. But, of course, um, Julian was the emperor. Uh, of Rome, mm-hmm. um, a, a couple of emperors after Constantine. So Constantine at the beginning of the fourth century becomes a Christian. And, and I think he really did become a Christian. Um, but then a, a couple of emperors later, so we're, we're in the year 361 now, in the sort of middle of the fourth century, Emperor Julian, um, who's a 30-year-old, he's smart, he's effective, he's a good warrior. He abandons Christianity. He expels from his royal court all Christians. He sacks all Christian professors because there were many Christian academics in this period. It's one of the best kept secrets of Christian history. Christians were leading intellectuals um, from very early on. But Julian gets rid of them all. He allows churches to be burnt down and um, he, he, he bans some Christians to go to church. He doesn't start a full-on persecution, but he does sideline Christianity, which had been doing so well. Uh, for a long time. And the other thing he does is he tries to beat Christians at charity. He worked out, and we have his own letters, so we know this is what he was thinking. He worked out that one of the key ways Christianity grew was through all the charities they were starting. They were feeding the poor, they were establishing hospitals and uh, burying the dead for free. And so he insisted that in the pagan temples, pagans do the same thing. And he donated imperial money to the pagan temples to try and beat the Christians at the charity game. Well, uh, but of course, you can't really convince pagans to do charity because their <laughs> their message isn't about charity. <laughs> and uh, so it never worked. And he died two years later. And uh, that was his, you know, he could have, he could have, humanly speaking, turned the whole fate of Christianity around. But instead, he died. And actually, it um, ultimately led to the advancement of Christianity because Christians saw how close they came to really uh, losing the empire, that they redoubled their efforts to win people to Christ. And within a generation, uh, maybe two generations, the majority of the Roman Empire is is now Christian. My guest is Dr. John Dixon. He's calling us today all the way from Australia. His book is called Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History. After a short break, we'll be right back with lots more with John.
Welcome back. My guest is Dr. John Dixon. His book is called Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. I I love the fact that, uh, John, as you are calling from your home in Australia, uh, that we're not paying for long-distance charges anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is free nowadays, talking to people halfway around the world. It is lovely. That is really nice. All right, here's a question out of your book, and I'm going to have you answer this one. Who's the greatest European you've never heard of? (laughs) Um, I'm going to say Alcuin of York. (laughs) <laughs> Alcuin was a, uh, a a Christian minister in York in the 700s, the mid to late 700s. Okay, so it's the 8th century. We think of this as the Dark Ages, or some people do anyway. And Alcuin uh, was the smartest man in Europe. He'd, he'd read um, the, the classical pagan sources, but also all of the Christian sources and Christian theology up to that point. And Charlemagne, who is the ruler of Europe, um, asks Alcuin to come to Europe and set up an educational system. Um, Charlemagne wanted Europe to be educated. And Alcuin set about um, establishing schools all the way across um, what we would call France and Germany and elsewhere, um, schools that were open to um, the rich and the poor, um, boys and girls, and he would train them in the so-called liberal arts. So many of your listeners will will know the sort of classical education model that is mm-hmm. that is you know, um, incredibly popular. But Alcuin is the one who's doing that in the name of Christ. So his view was: we need to learn about arithmetic and grammar and rhetoric and uh, philosophy and astronomy and music because God's wisdom is imprinted on the world. So anything you study about the world is learning more about God. And knowing all of those things will help you read your Bible, was his approach to education. And he established, uh, in the end, hundreds of schools right across Europe that lifted Europe to an educational place that hadn't been seen before. I mean, even in Greek and Roman times, um, schooling was really not for uh, the poor, not for girls. And Alcuin almost single-handedly was the kind of secretary for education, we might say, um, who established the system we now take for granted. That is, schooling is for everyone. I mean, it's hard to put ourselves back in a period where that no one assumed that. Right. But we all assume it now, and it's because of Alcuin, and not, not just his intellect, but his Christian faith drove him to make sure everyone who who you know was able to learn the the liberal arts would would learn it so that they would know God better. So John, I assume we're putting Alcuin of York in the saints category. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the <laughs> other great thing, the other great thing he did is he he um, taught Charlemagne to stop killing people in the name of Christ. Um, Charlemagne <laughs> was would go into new areas like up north in Saxony and try and convert those um, hard-nosed uh, Germanic peoples up north by saying, baptism or the sword, you take wow. your pick. And, and it was Alcuin, and we have Alcuin's letters pleading Charlemagne, um, rebuking Charlemagne, um, and saying, no, the way of Christ is the way of gentleness and persuasion. You'll only turn people off Jesus Christ by doing that. And we know that the very next year after this letter Alcuin wrote to Charlemagne, Charlemagne changed the law so that no longer was it forcing people to become Christians. Oh, I like I like persuasive people. So, so let's talk about another saint. Uh, well, 
boy, where to, where to go? For that. I, I know, but uh, I mean, I love I love Alcuin of York. I want to hear another. I'd like to hear about another saint. Basil, Basil the Great. I was hoping was, you were going to uh, bring up Basil. Yeah, he um, he's mostly known for theology. So n- nerdy listeners who have been to seminary will know Basil of Caesarea um, mainly because of his defense of the Trinity. Um, these so-called Cappadocian fathers, they lived in what we would call Turkey now, uh, were high intellects and they defended the Trinity and showed how it, you know, it made sense of reality. However, the really in his day, the most impactful thing he did is start the world's first public hospital. And uh, we have the documentation for it and the description of it. And he established really a, a healthcare centre, we might say, that had one section for lepers, another section for the aged, another section for abandoned babies, um, another section just for the for the sick, and so on. And he offered this free of charge using church money. Mm. Um, he employed uh, doctors and nurses using church money, and it was such a success that by the end of that century, the fourth century. Um, there was another big hospital, and it was a Christian hospital um, in Rome. And within, mm, let me say, 400 years, there were literally thousands of hospitals, all of them run by the church. In fact, in the Middle Ages, part of the bishop's job description was to make sure there was a hospital in their diocese that could offer um, health care to, to people. So um, Basil, uh, you know, a theological nerd, who yeah. is also very, very practical. Yeah. John, I appreciate that. We have a couple minutes left. I know this is not enough time to talk about the Inquisition, but I'd love for you to give us a, a teaser on it. Well, I'm no fan. Uh, nor am I. I like the Monty um, Python sketch, sketch, but that's about oh, it. Oh, indeed. Oh, indeed. Um, look, the Inquisitions were terrible in as much as uh, they were you know, designed to torture people to um, give up their heresies. Um, The thing that, the point I try and make in um, the book is that the Inquisitions were actually in their day regarded as the fairest, most just, (laughs) most kind courts in the land. Um, People, we we have records of prisoners in the secular courts begging to go to the Inquisition courts because they know that they get a proper bed and meals and rules of justice. The other thing to know is that it's shocking that the Inquisitions, the Spanish Inquisition, killed uh, about five to six thousand people uh, for heresy over its 350 years. Um, so that's five or six thousand too many. But then compare it with something like a secular revolution, the French Revolution, which killed 17,000 in just nine months. People often look at the Inquisitions and say, aha, look how bad the church is. But people don't look at the French uh, revolution, which is an entirely secular, atheistic revolution. It killed 17,000 people in just nine months. But people don't go, oh, look at the French <laughs> or, or look at secularism. Um, the point is the human heart, yes, in possession of an ideology can do terrible things, but there's no way we can look at the Inquisitions and say, aha, that's proof that the church is uh, is wicked. Mm. But we do look at the history and and say that violence has always been a big part of the human story. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, you, the the Romans and Greeks didn't need the Christians to teach them how to do war, right? Like, right. They right. were doing fine on the war front. So the real question isn't have Christians done bad things. The obvious the obvious answer is yes. The question isn't you know have cr- Christians participated in all that is wicked. The answer is yes. The real question is what is the unique contribution of Christianity? Well, no one could say war, torture, or anything like that, because that's everywhere. The unique contributions of Christianity to our world are the doctrines that every human being is equal and precious, the love of enemies, humility, charity, education for all. These things were not in existence in Greece and Rome. They were given to our Western world because of the church because of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Yeah, John, I feel like I've learned a whole lot in a short amount of time. So thank you for uh, finishing your breakfast and coming on the program with me. (laughs) Bill, it was a real pleasure. Yeah, I hope you come back. We're going to reach out to you um, soon. Thank you. Lovely. All right. Thank you. Dr. John Dixon has been my guest. His book, uh, One of Twenty, that he's written, this one's called Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History. Uh, very interesting book. We'll take a little break. When we come back. Uh, hour two is just ahead with Dr. Mark Muska. It's called Ask the Professor. So whatever questions you have, let us know. You can send them over right as we speak at 877-933-2484. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.